And if you have your Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 2. The Gospel of Mark chapter 2. Last week, we uh, looked together at what it means to be a healthy church member in a standalone sermon. But this morning, we're going to get back into our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, beginning in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us this gospel of Mark so that we might know more of your son, Lord, I ask that you would get me out of the way. Simply use me this morning as a mouthpiece to let your scripture be heard and your son be seen. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word and that you would bless the preaching of your word. For our good and for your glory, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When my now best friend and I first met, We refused to speak to each other for quite a while. We worked together every day, working in close quarters together, but he and I crossed paths and never would speak to each other. Now he's moved away and has moved to Texas to do ministry there. But in those first weeks of our uh, acquaintance with each other, we refused to even say so much as hello to each other. And after we had become good friends, one of us had finally broken the ice, we asked each other, why didn't you speak to me for so many weeks? Why, why wouldn't you go out of your way to say hello to me? And my response to him was, well, I thought that you were going to be one of those jerks who went to seminary and thought that you knew it all and that I just wouldn't light, wouldn't light a candle to what you thought yourself to be. I said, why didn't you speak to me? And he said, well, I thought the same thing about you. You see, he and I didn't speak to each other for a long time because we both had misconceptions of who each other were. We both had misconceptions of, uh, of our identity, of our character. But what we found out as that friendship grew is that we were both godly people who were trying to worship God and honor God in our life, and we needed that friendship with each other. That friendship got us through a lot of hard times together. And so this morning, as we look at this text, what we see is that we need good, godly friends. 
And more importantly than needing good and godly friends, we need to be good and godly friends. But that's not all this story tells us here. This story tells us men who tells us about four men who were good and godly friends, but the story isn't just about them. The story tells us that these good and godly friends were carrying a paralyzed man to see Jesus, but the story isn't just about this paralyzed man. The story ultimately is about Jesus. Every verse in every chapter in every book of the Bible is about Jesus. It all points us to him. And so we need to be asking the ultimate question of what is this text showing us about Jesus? And we'll get there. But first, I want us to see these friends in this story. Let's set the scene for us here in verse 1. When he, being Jesus, had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. So we'll remember in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus is going from city to city preaching the word of God, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, saying, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. He goes from city to city and he's performing miracles. He's healing people. He's preaching the word. He says that he preaches for that is what he came to do. Jesus is a preacher. And here in Mark chapter 2, verse 2, we see that he's doing exactly what he said he came to do in preaching the word. It says at the end of verse 2, he was speaking the word to them. In other words, he was preaching to them from the Bible that they had at that time, the the Torah, the scrolls of the Old Testament. And here in verse 1, going back up to verse 1, we see that he's back at Capernaum. He's back at home. The first thing I want us to see in this setting of the scene is that Jesus is at his home in Capernaum. This is where the hub of his ministry took place. This is where he very likely lived because it all often says that he goes back there. He goes back home to that place. It says when he had come, come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. Now Jesus, we're told in many of the Gospels, spent much time at the house of Simon Peter. And Simon Peter's house was in this place called Capernaum. The second thing that I want us to see is that uh, here, where, where this took place, it looks like this was at a home. We don't know this for sure from this text, but if we go down to verse 15, we see that they were at Simon Peter's house. Verse 15, and it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus, and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. Jesus was, it says, in his own house, and his house was in Simon Peter's house, we see from the other Gospels. So what the house very likely looked like was more of a hut, more of a mud-sided building that would have uh, tree branches laying across the top so that the, the leaves and the mud could have been put across the top to make a hut of sorts. And here is where Jesus is teaching the people. And it says that a crowd was gathered so large that there wasn't even room near the door. Now what we see in that is that the gospel does not require lights, camera, and action to be preached. The gospel does not require a comfortable setting and a beautiful place. The gospel simply, to to have good preaching, it simply requires the gospel. That we tell people about the word of God. Here they are in this place called Capernaum in a poor city in Jesus' own home where he was with Simon Peter in what was very likely a hut. And people were gathering from all over the place just to hear the word of God preached. We should come to church not to be entertained. 
We should come to church not because we feel like there's something in it ultimately for us, but we should come to church to worship Jesus. We should come to church no matter how comfortable it may be, no matter if we have lights or heat and air, no matter what it, the environment might be. We should come to church ultimately and most primarily to hear the Word of God preached. And that's why these people were gathered here. They were here to hear Jesus preach. And then we get to verse 3. In verses 3 and 4, we see this introduction of the paralyzed man's friends. Verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. While again, this story is neither ultimately about the friends or about this paralyzed man, we see that these friends put on display for us an example of the kind of friend that we should be. They had made up their mind that no matter the cost, no matter how foolish it made them look to the people who were watching them, no matter the energy that they had to put into it, they wanted to get this man to Jesus. And this is the same way that we should be with our loved ones and our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, and even those who we might consider our enemies. We should desire to see a community brought to Jesus with us being the ones who bring them there. It says in verse 3, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now this man, this paralyzed man, was on a pallet. It very likely would have been a piece of wood or maybe even just a blanket that they had carried this man across the city into Jesus. It would have cost them much energy. It would have cost them much exertion to bring this man to Jesus. And then once they use all that energy carrying this man to Jesus, here in verse 4 it says, they get to the place where Jesus is, they get to the house where He's preaching to people, and they see the crowd surrounding. They see that there's standing room only. They see that there's not even a way to get into the front door to get this man to Jesus. But they had discussed this, it would seem, and had determined among themselves that they would get this man to Jesus no matter the cost. Because it says here in verse 4, being unable to get to him, to Jesus, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Now that's an understatement. Probably for the, for the sake of brevity in writing, but that's an understatement. To say that they removed the roof to get this man to Jesus was much more than just going up and taking a lid off a building. They would have had to go up likely with shovels or with their bare hands and they would have had to dig into this mud. It would have been dirty work. It would have been work that required much labor from them to remove all of these sticks that had been packed down deep with mud, to remove all of the leaves from the top of this house, to dig deep into the mud and pull all of it up to get it to the side, to make a hole big enough in the roof to, to bring this paralyzed man down. And now imagine that here you are. Imagine here we are in our service. And we look up and all of a sudden we start seeing stuff falling from the roof. We start seeing tiles fall down. We start seeing the lights shaking in their place. We're wondering what's going on up on that roof. And then all of a sudden that hole gets larger and larger and larger. And then we start seeing a man come down into the middle of the service we'd probably be wondering what was going on there. And that's the picture 
that we need to have in our minds as we read this text. Not simply that they went up and took the lid off the roof, but that they were digging down. They had to put much labor into this. They had to put energy into this to get this man to Jesus. They did whatever it took, whatever the cost, however foolish they might have looked to the people who were looking up through the hole in the roof saying, why did you do that? They didn't care about any of that as long as they got this man to Jesus. And this is how we should be in our daily life. Who cares if people are watching us as we share the gospel with a person at a restaurant? Who cares what our coworkers might think of us? Who cares if our family members say, I don't want anything to do with him anymore. He's too deep in following Jesus. I don't want to be around him. Who really cares as long as we are living our life for Jesus and getting our family members and our friends to Jesus? That is what this life is all about. At the end of the day, I'm not ultimately worried about all of the things that life throws my way. I am ultimately worried about, am I living for Jesus? Because that is what will last for eternity to come. And these friends here didn't care about anything else. They simply cared about getting this friend to Jesus. Do you want your coworkers to come to Christ in saving faith? Do you want to be with your loved ones for eternity in heaven? Do you want your neighbors to turn from the sin that they live in and to place their trust in the Savior who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Then it begins with you. It begins with each and every one of us sharing the gospel, telling people about who this Jesus is, revealing to them what God can do for them. If God can do it for me, He can do it for them. And that is the sense that we should live this life being willing to do whatever it takes to tell anyone and everyone about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So tell them the gospel. Invite them, bring them even to church. Pray for them, pray with them. Do whatever it takes to get them to Jesus. Use all of your energy, all of your resources that God has given you for the purpose of telling people about Him. God has given us breath in our lungs for a purpose and it's not to be wasted gossiping about, about one another. It's not to be wasted tearing one another down. It's not to be wasted building ourselves up. Our breath that we are given in our lungs is to be used to give back to God's glory. And what better way than to tell people about Jesus? And so yes, God is sovereign over salvation and draws to Himself those whom He would save. John six forty four says... No one can come to me except that the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Romans 9 verse 15 says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In John 10 verses 14 through 15, Jesus himself says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with the shepherd. So Jesus tells us over and over again in his word that he is sovereign over salvation. That salvation is not hinged upon or dependent upon us and our ability to come to him or our ability to make everything sound just so in order to prick someone's heart and bring them to him. But salvation is ultimately dependent upon and hinged upon Christ and the cross at Calvary, what he did for us. So yes, God is sovereign and he will save whom he will. Those who are saved from their sins are saved because God has set his love upon them. Because God has set his grace and his mercy upon them. He has said, this one is mine. I am calling them to me. So yes, God is sovereign over salvation. But at the same time, 
God is one who accomplishes what his will is by means. And we are his means of accomplishing his will. When Jesus says in John chapter 10 that his sheep will hear his voice, how will they hear his voice if not by a preacher? Romans 10 says, how will they hear the gospel if not by someone telling them of it? Yes, God will save whom he will save, but we are responsible for getting the message to those around us. We tell people of the gospel. In Romans 1.16, I've quoted it so many times, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So we must go out and tell people about the word of God. We must be like these friends, good and godly friends, who have the greatest desire in our life to be that those around us would come to know Christ as Savior. And now here in verses 5 through 10, we see what Jesus does as this man comes to him. And Jesus, seeing their faith, verse 5, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now what we see here is very similar to what we saw in the last sermon we had in Mark. In the last sermon, as as we look at Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45, we saw that there was a man who was a leper. There was a man who was a beggar who would have been cast out of the city because of his disease, his ailment. He wouldn't have been welcomed to come near other people because it would have been very likely that that disease would have been uh, contagious and contracted by the other people with whom he had come into contact. And so this, par- this, this, uh, this leper, as he came into town, people would have walked away from him and scattered away so that they wouldn't come near him. But Jesus says, come to me. And in the same way, this paralyzed man, people probably wouldn't have had anything to do with him. People would have wanted him to just go about his way and leave them alone, not bother them, not beg them for money, not ask anything from them. Don't bother me. That would have been the attitude of most of the people in the crowd. And yet Jesus here in verse 5 sees through all of that. He sees past the man's disability. He sees past the man's begging. He sees past what everybody else saw and thought of this man. And he sees their faith. He sees the heart of the man. And he, rather than pushing the man away, says, Son, he refers to him intimately. He refers to him as one who cares about his situation. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now this probably would have been a letdown. Because as all of these friends were trying to get this man to Jesus, they were getting him to Jesus primarily for healing. They understood that it was Jesus and Jesus alone who could heal this man from his paralyzed condition. And so they're expecting, we're going to lower this man down. He's going to go in front of Jesus. He's going to touch the hem of the garment or Jesus is going to reach out and touch this man. And he's going to be healed. He's going to get up and walk and everything's going to be fine. But as soon as this man gets in front of Jesus, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. They're probably thinking, that's not what we came here for. We came here so that we could see him walk. We came here because we wanted to have him go fishing with us. We wanted to have him go throw a football with us. We wanted to have him go do all of the things that normal people can do. This is a letdown for us. He says, your sins are forgiven. You see, Jesus saw past everything else. He looked deeper than the outside. Jesus gave this man what he didn't even know he needed. This man thought that he just needed healing Externally, but Jesus understood that this man needed healing internally. 
that his heart needed to be made right, that his sins, his, his, his lack of faith probably that had taken place over the years of, well, I'm never going to get healed. This is the worst condition I could ever have. Jesus sees their faith in that moment and says, son, your sins are forgiven. I'm giving you something much better than healing on this earth. I'm giving you eternal life in me. I'm giving you a relationship with the Son of God. I'm connecting you back to your Father, your Creator. I'm giving you life. I'm giving you everything that a person could possibly need. Beloved, if we don't have anything else in this life but our salvation, then we have all that we could possibly need. I'm reminded of the old song, Take the world and give me Jesus. Take all the things this world has to offer. I don't want fame. I don't want a name for myself. I don't want wealth beyond measure. I don't want any of that if I have to take that in place of Jesus. Take that all away and give me Jesus. This man got what he didn't even know he needed. He thought that he just needed Jesus to give him some power, to give him some strength. But no, this man needed Jesus himself. This man didn't just need Jesus' strength, just, just need Jesus' power. He needed Jesus. So Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now this word forgiven, in the original language, the Greek literally means to have it taken away. To have it separated from you. In other words, Jesus says, son, I'm taking you and putting you here. And I'm taking your sins and I'm putting your sins here. I'm looking at you apart from your sins. I'm not looking at your sins. I'm not looking at your guilt. I'm not looking at your shame. I'm looking at you as a person, as someone whom I am setting my love upon. And you know what I'm going to do with your sins? Just wait until the end of Mark, in Mark chapter 15, when Jesus nails them to the cross, because that's what he does with our sins. He nails them to the cross. He dies in our place. Galatians tells us that he takes our place so that we might be looked at as Christ, that we might be looked at as clean, as holy, as pure, as sanctified. Jesus separates the man from his sins by saying that he himself, that Jesus himself will be the sacrifice to forgive him of them. And then in verse six, we see that there are some who were sitting there just waiting to gossip. Verse six, but... Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now they had one thing right here. They did rightly understand that God and God alone can forgive sins. But what they failed to understand is that Jesus is God. They failed to understand that the one before them was the Son of God. And so the scribes here are sitting there and they're reasoning in their hearts. You can just see the consternation on their face. They're just thinking through this. They're thinking, who is he? Who is this man? What place does he have? What authority does he have here? Isn't this the guy from Galilee? The guy from Nazareth? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this the poor man's son? The scribes were sitting there reasoning this in their hearts. This word reasoning literally means to be churning it over. That it's just eating away at them inside. They're thinking, who is this? Who in the world does he think he is? And they say in verse seven, why does this man speak this way? They're not even gonna refer to him as Jesus. Why does Jesus speak this way? He's not even worthy of being called by his name. Why does this man talk like this? Who does he think he is? 
He's blaspheming. He's saying something about himself. He's saying that he is God, that he can do what only God can do. He's taking the place of God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can make righteous a man but God alone? Only God can do that. So at least they had that part right. At least they understood rightly that it is God and God alone who can heal sins and who can forgive us. But here in verse 8, it says, Immediately Jesus, aware in His Spirit that they were reasoning this way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Now in the very fact that Jesus asked them this question, that should cue them in on who Jesus is. Because go back up with me in verse 6. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning where? Reasoning out loud, talking amongst themselves, asking the question. No, reasoning in their hearts. In other words, this was, uh, this was to say that they were internally processing what was going on. They were asking themselves within their own mind and heart, who is he? And Jesus, aware in his spirit, not aware in his ears, because he heard it out loud, aware in his spirit, aware, aware of what they were reasoning within themselves, it says in verse 8, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Jesus is proving here that He is who He says He is, that He is the Son of God. Because here are some people sitting in the audience and they're thinking, who is this? What is He doing here? And Jesus says, I know what you're thinking. I can see deeper than the outside. And that's what all of this is about here, that Jesus sees beyond the external. Jesus saw beyond the paralyzed man's condition, the the physical condition of the man. He saw his spiritual condition. He saw beyond the outside faces of these scribes, the ones who were the, the people who needed to make sure that everything was right, that everything was just so. He saw beyond all of that and saw within them. And he asked, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? These people were here just searching for gossip. They were so busy looking around for gossip that they were missing the gospel. They failed to see the miracles of Jesus because they're just looking for material about Jesus. And I wonder this morning if that would be descriptive of you. Are some of you here this morning just looking around to see what everybody else is doing? Are some of you here this morning just looking around for something to talk about at family dinner after service. There was a pastor once who said that roast deacon and roast pastor does not make for a very good Sunday dinner. I wonder if this would be descriptive of some of you, that you're just looking for something to talk about. You're just looking for something to gossip about. You're just looking for the next thing to be mad about. There was a story of an old lady in the church, not this church, but in a church, who constantly complained about everything. Her pastor drove by this lady's house and saw that her potato crop was growing really beautifully that year. And so he thought, well, maybe I finally have something I can talk to her about without hearing her complain in response. And so the next Sunday morning, he talked to the lady and he said, hey, Sister Susan, I saw that your potato crops were growing really well. I drove by the house the other day and it looks like you're doing really well. He thought, I finally got her. I finally got a good conversation that's not going to end in a complaint. And her response was, yeah, they are. But I really need some bad potatoes so I can feed them to the pigs. I can't feed them the good ones. So she found a way even to complain about something that was good. 
I wonder if that would describe you. That you're constantly looking for something to complain about. You're constantly looking for something to gossip about. You're constantly looking for something to reason within yourself. Something that just churns and just eats away at you. Something that will just keep you awake at night thinking, I can't believe so-and-so said that. I can't believe so-and-so did that. Jesus has something to say about that in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, take the log that is out of your own, take the log out of your own eye before you look at the speck in your brother's. That's what he does here. He says, rather than wondering why I'm doing this, rather than just looking for something to gossip about, answer this question for me. Verse 9. Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that for the purpose of, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. So the healing, the external healing that Jesus performed for this man was proof that he could heal him internally. The people needed proof. The people needed statistics. They needed to see something. And so Jesus says, so I can prove to you that I did for him what I promised I did for him internally, namely heal him of his sins, forgiving him of all of his trespasses and transgressions against me, against the Father. I'm going to heal him. I'm going to show you the kind of power that I have. But he backs them into a corner here. He says, which one's easier? To say four words or to say nine words? Is it easier to say four words or nine words? Now, the obvious answer is that it's easier to say four words. You're going to save a little bit of breath to use it somewhere else if you, if you only say four words. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and pick up your pallet and walk? Four or nine? Which is easier? The answer is obvious. But here's the problem. If these scribes say, well, it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven, they're saying that salvation is easy. That salvation is easier than they made it out to be because for the Jewish religion, for the Jewish uh, rituals, they had to follow 613 rules. They had to dot every I and cross every T to make sure that they were perfect in order to enter heaven. But if they say, well, it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven, they're saying that it's easier to have your sins forgiven than what they had said that it was. You see that? They were very legalistic. You have to do all of these things. You have to do everything just right. And maybe, just maybe, you'll make it into heaven. But if they went the other way and said, well, it's easier to say the nine words, then they'd just look foolish. They'd just show themselves to be as foolish as they truly were. And here in verse 10, Jesus says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. This phrase here, Son of Man, is a phrase that's not used very often. But if we go back to Daniel chapter 7, if you'll turn with me there, Daniel chapter 7, we see that this word is used, this phrase. Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14. In Daniel's vision, it says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days, that is, the Father, God the Father, and was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, one which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And Jesus here uses this phrase, this title for himself, the Son of Man, to prove to them that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. I'll refer to it again. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The gospel is about the or this, this gospel of Mark is about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark's thesis statement, Mark's purpose of writing this gospel, this book, is to tell us that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the long-awaited for Messiah. That He is the one who has come to take away the sins of the world. That He is the one who has come to be nailed to a cross. That He is the one we've been longing for. And Jesus here says, you're wondering why I've healed this man of his, of, his, of, of his ailment and why I've forgiven him of his sins. You're wondering why I've done that, what authority I have. Well, I'm going to show you. And along with that, I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm the son of man. Jesus says that he is the one who has an everlasting kingdom. That he is the one who has dominion forever. And then if we go down to verse 12. After he says that, I'm going to show, I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to show you. And he says, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. Verse 12. And he being the paralyzed man got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone. Now imagine this again. It's standing room only. Half the city of Capernaum was here. Half the people of all the other surrounding cities were here. And this man, who had been paralyzed for a long time, this man who everybody had been aware of his condition because beggars would sit outside the synagogue asking people for money, and anybody who was in any kind of physical distress of any sort would be a beggar. Everyone would have known this man. They see him get up and walk. What does it say at the end of verse 12? So that they were all amazed and we're glorifying God saying we have never seen anything like this now this word thaumazo is the Greek word that's used for amazed it's literally without words these scribes who had so much to say before are all of a sudden silent these scribes who had so many questions to ask before all of a sudden are just shut up under the amazement of God They're without words. They don't know what to say. Except for we've never seen anything like this before. When you come to Christ in salvation, when you come to Christ in saving faith, and trust in Him, and see the peace and the joy that He brings, the love that He bestows upon you, you'll say, I've never seen anything like this before. How could a God so perfect, so holy, so pure forgive a sinner such as me? I've never seen anything like this before. Verse 13. And Jesus went out again by the seashore and all the people were coming to Him and He was teaching them. Jesus continued to go on telling everybody about the Gospel. He continued to go on pointing everyone to Himself, telling them of who He was, 
and of what He could do. If Jesus did it for this paralyzed man, if Jesus did it for me, He can do it for you. Do you see that this story is about good and godly friends? It's about the kind of friend that we need to be to those around us. But more than that, it's about the paralyzed man who came and got healing and even got the healing he didn't know he needed. Spiritual healing. But even more than that, it's about who Jesus is and what He can do. No matter how deep your sin, no matter how far you've run from Him, no matter how desperately wicked you are, Jesus has power and authority to forgive. It has been bestowed upon Him to have the authority to say, Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. If you need to come and pray this morning, I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk to you more about what it means to have your sins forgiven. To have your sins removed from you. And to be looked at under the gracious and merciful eye of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that you have allowed me to say something of your son. Lord, if I were to say all the words in the human language, if I were to preach every sermon that has ever been preached, if I were to read your word a million times over, it would still not be at the foothills of the Everest that is your son. God, he is so good. He is so pure and holy. And Father, we thank you that you sent him to die on our behalf, to rise so that we might rise with him and to ascend so that he might be forever calling his people home. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.